Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that lets you contribute to my work, and that'll help keep the podcast going and light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is also listed in that show notes page. If you contribute at least $4.99 per month, you're eligible for membership in the Ward Republic, which gets you one phone call with myself and the other Ward Republic members each month. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our new sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold backs. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page as well. And if you use it, I will get a 1% commission. So click on my link in the show notes page and help fuel monetary decentralization today. And don't forget to download the MeWe app and search for me so we can be friends and then I can add you into the show's private MeWe group so we can have sane and rational discourse around historic and current political topics. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic. And actually, just a couple more things before we get started today. The Supreme Court will start hearing oral arguments on the vaccine mandates on Friday, January 7th which is likely the day you're going to be hearing this episode. So I'm going to listen to those arguments and potentially do an episode on those findings if they say anything of value or if anything overly egregious is said. And lastly, I wanted to give a shout out to one of our very own group members. He has asked to remain anonymous for privacy reasons, but if you're into reading Substack articles, then please check out mrminger.substack.com. That is M-R-M. E-N-G-E-R.substack.com. So mrminger.substack.com. And that again is ran by one of our group members, and he has a great essay up on the libertarian struggle to solve the immigration question. And all right, without further ado, let's get started on today's topic. And so today, this is going to be another follow-up to episode 68, the We the Corporations episode. And specifically today, we're going to focus on an essay from the book, Who Owns America?, which is the recommended reading for the month of June from our Jeffersonian reading list in episode 73. So I will try to keep spoilers to a minimum, but the essay we're going to be looking at today was written by one of the Southern agrarians named Lyle H. Lanier, and it is titled Big Business and the Property State. And Lanier was born and raised in Tennessee, just to give you some background, and he eventually became a faculty member of Vanderbilt University. That was sort of the unofficial association that brought all of the Southern agrarians together at at one time or another, they had some sort of job within Vanderbilt university. So he also contributed an essay titled a critique of the philosophy of progress to the agrarians first compilation work, which again was I'll take my stand. So now that we have some background on him, let's go ahead and take a look and see some of the tenets of this essay. So what are some of the issues that Lanier saw with major corporations? Well, there's going to be some overlap with R.L. Dabney because Dabney was definitely an influence on the Southern agrarians. But the first issue that Lanier points out is extreme consolidation of asset ownership by a small cabal. And Lanier based this on a report produced by Adolf Burrell and Gardner Means of the Brookings Institute titled The Modern Corporation and Private Property which detailed that in 1932, they found that roughly 50% of all business assets in the U.S. were owned by only 200 corporations. And for a modern comparison, Walmart has a 26% share of the entire U.S. grocery market and in some locales has achieved a share exceeding 90%, 
while roughly 45% of the U.S. grocery market is controlled by 10 corporations. So in the essay, Lanier points out the logical role of the mega corporation being basically a centralizing superman of the idealistic communist state since they made centralization and control of industry so much more efficient. And he summed this up by stating, quote, logically, they are the supermen of the ideal communistic state, but in America, one finds them operating largely at variance with the requirements of this theoretical status, end quote. And so I found that to be a very interesting argument. I, I had never really thought of that, but in Soviet Russia, you know, the way I was taught about communism, I kind of just figured, hey, any private business of any sort was probably frowned upon. But no, not necessarily. They actually loved their big corporations specifically because it made their job easier in terms of centralizing and controlling certain industries. So Lanier also saw this tendency as a means to destroy any semblance of market competition. And he had this to say about that. He said, quote, through the decision of the Supreme Court, which permits one company to acquire the assets of a competing company, through that peerless technique of 20th century banker capitalism, the holding company, through national trade association agreements and through national advertising of retail prices, the American system of free competition has been systematically exterminated, end quote. And so what Lanier is saying here is that through hostile takeovers with one company buying the assets of another or if one company goes out of business and then you get a basically kind of a vulture firm swoop in and scoop the assets up on the cheap, Whatever the case may be, you would have some sort of private cabal basically consolidating certain industries. We saw this with the sugar refineries. The railroads were a good example of this. But I do want to give you all a different point of view on that particular issue. And I'm not saying that it's not an issue, but there it was a multifaceted problem. So in his book, The Progressive Era, Murray Rothbard basically says, well, look, yes, you had certain industries that ended up being cartelized, but... That didn't really happen until the government got involved. However, in my opinion, this is really just a case of the chicken and the egg. So which one came first honestly doesn't matter which one came first, because on one hand, you have these big titans of industry who are saying, well, we can just pay off government officials and get legislation that's friendly to what we're trying to do. And then on the other, yes, you had government officials who were ready to welcome the power of regulation. So... Again, chicken and the egg, does it really matter which one came first? Is there really a good guy in that equation? Honestly, my answer is no. But those are two of the different thought processes. So you have Lanier on one hand basically strictly blaming the businesses. And then you have Rothbard on the other hand saying, no, 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 the businesses could not have done this without the government. But I kind of think it's two peas in a pod. And Lanier also thought that the banks would be the worst offenders in this situation. So because of their ability to concentrate wealth, and in his words, he says, quote, large banking houses have been the principal agents in affecting such concentration because of their control of the required liquid capital, end quote. And to this point, as of 2020, and that's the most recent year I've been able to find a report for thus far, the three largest banks in the United States, which are Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, respectively, had control of over seven and a half trillion with a T dollars among themselves. This represents roughly 33% of the GDP in the U S in 2020, which was reported at $21.48 trillion. So you have three banks who can exercise that much either direct or indirect control because they have so many assets under their command. This could take the form of account holders having deposits on hand, whatever the case may be, but the bank gets to lend off of those deposits and basically exercise control over it, 
because through the credit system, they can determine who gets access to that money. That's a big, big reason I'm so, so, so against Bank of America being able to make a decision to say, well, we're just going to stop lending to certain gun manufacturers. It's not, it's not a fair competition because, again, three banks, 33% of the entire GDP of the U.S. economy, that's, that's not a good thing. That is a very, very high amount of concentration. And then the next problem was separation of ownership and control. And again, much like Dabney before him, Lanier points out the problem of a managerial class who can use other people's money as they see fit, thus depriving shareholders of any real semblance of ownership. And Lanier has this to say on this topic. He says, quote, ironically enough, the most vociferous defenders of free competitive enterprise are the big industrialists and their lawyers whose illicit appeal to the sentiments properly attached to the institution of private ownership has served to camouflage the development of an alien economic system. In these matters, America is confronted with a condition, not a theory. It is obvious that the peculiar dissociation of ownership from control of property, which characterizes the corporation and the reduction of a progressively increasing number of real property owners to the status of wage earners, create conditions not contemplated by the founders of the American Republic. These conditions are so complex that democracy, and here he doesn't mean king numbers. He, he means a republic based on the ideals of a freeholding citizenry. Throughout the world is giving way to one or the other of those two poles of political absolutism, communism or fascism, end quote. And so again, he's saying when you strip people of real ownership of anything and you reduce them to a class of dependent wage earners, they're going to be looking to the corporation to solve all of their problems. And what happened if the corporation goes bust? What happened if, or what happens if now you have corporations saying, we'll get a experimental shot or you're going to lose your job. Then you're stripping people of any real sense of independence and they're going to turn one way or another. They're going to want communism, which we're starting to see a lot of that, especially in the younger generation with people supporting the likes of AOC, or you could end up getting something like we saw with, Italy and have fascism, which again, and I've done an episode on that. Joe Biden or Joe Mussolini, as I like to call him, basically straight up saying, yes, we're going to use the corporations or the private industries to do our bidding. That That is Mussolini style fascism. So Lanier pointed this out again. I'm not saying anything new. When, when I talk to you guys about some of this stuff, I am not saying anything new. We have people all throughout the past who are basically American prophets and unfortunately, they were Cassandra. We did not listen to them until it was too late. So what my goal is with this, I want to revive these arguments because this is something that people on the right need to talk about. This is something that people on the left do talk about, but in a very, very misguided manner. And this is something that libertarians need to at least acknowledge is a problem versus just saying, what's well, a private company, bro? They can do what they want. No, we need to have these discussions. And on this particular topic, I also want to pause here. So Lanier, again, was pointing out the problem of a temporary managerial class who would have access to so much of other people's money. So I want to draw a comparison here that I think is accurate to actually something that Hans Hermann Hoppe said. So if you guys don't know who Hans Hermann Hoppe is, he's a libertarian theorist. He, he's written a lot of really interesting works. I, I've actually found a lot of value in what he has to say. But I just want to draw a parallel here. So in his book, Democracy, the God That Failed, Hoppe actually talks about what he perceives to be a terrible flaw in a Republican or Democratic system as it pertains to ownership versus control. 
And in this book, he says, quote, in contrast to the internal and external moderation of a monarchy, a democratic or publicly owned government implies increased excess and the transition from a world of kings to one of democratically elected presidents must be expected to lead to a systematic increase in the intensity and extension of government power. A democratic ruler can use the government apparatus to his personal advantage, but he does not own it. He cannot sell government resources and privately pocket the receipts from such sales. In distinct contrast to a king, a president will want to maximize not total government wealth or capital values and current income, but current income regardless and at the expense of capital values, end quote. And so capital values there just means the actual engines of wealth production. But with this, you could replace each use of the word government there with the word corporation and you have a striking picture of the harm that comes along with unaccountable professional managers who hold the reins of corporate power for a short time, and then they walk away from it to take over somewhere else. This incentivizes them to pursue short-run profits at long-term expense. The whole phenomenon behind this is called quarterly capitalism, and they care only about the next quarter and the next generation be damned as long as I get mine. Companies load themselves up to the gills with horrendous levels of debt enabled by the zero interest rate policies of the Federal Reserve, and then they take over other non-related companies or leverage their debt to finance dividend payments or merge with so-called competitors, which really end up being more so like frenemies. And the only saving grace for this libertarian argument against any form of government, in my opinion, is that private corporations have not formally achieved the power of compulsion yet. But as we discussed in that R.L. Dabney episode, they're getting dangerously close with the pharmaceutical industry receiving what are essentially mandated profits for the experimental jabs. So how long is it until you get some sort of legally recognized obligation to shop at a certain place or to do this or to do that? I know that sounds like I'm probably wearing my tenfold hat today, but look, did we two years ago, did we ever think that we would be where we're at now with the pharmaceutical industry? Some people probably did. I'll be honest, I did not. I was kind of blindsided by that. But the reality is we are where we are. And then Lanier also saw there was some value to corporations, but he kind of looked at it as a double-edged sword of benefits. So also in the vein of Dabney, Lanier did understand that large industrial corporations brought certain blessings and benefits, stating, quote, One thinks, for example, of assembly line types of manufacturing, of communication, transportation, and certain phases of the electric power industry. And electricity back then was actually seen as a huge blessing, especially in rural areas. They they saw electricity as basically the greatest thing since sliced bread, just to give you all some context. These large-scale enterprises perform valuable economic services, and no one would deny the many social benefits which have resulted from their development, end quote. And this is absolutely true. I typed the outline and recorded the audio for this episode on a computer made by a corporation, Apple to be specific. I can purchase something on my phone from Amazon from the comfort of my own couch and have it here within one to two days. That is a convenience unheard of in the past generations, but what is the cost of these luxuries besides the monetary aspect? That is the issue that Lanier followed this statement up with by stating, quote, but the benefits have cost too much and have been accompanied by a progressively increasing concentration of economic power, which is inimical to the welfare of the people, end quote. And to highlight this assertion, Apple has a market value of over $3 trillion. 
Its largest shareholder is another corporation, specifically the Vanguard Group, which owns 1.3 billion shares through its investors in the form of mutual funds, ETFs, and individual stock owners. But Vanguard actually, at least through its mutual funds, retains the voting rights over those shares. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure about the individual stockholders, but through the ETFs and the mutual funds, Vanguard has the voting rights, not the individuals who hold the shares. So we have to think about that. How do you subject these things to any sort of real control? Because as it currently stands, all of that wealth, all of Apple's $3 trillion in, in market value is subject basically to the control of a group of non-people that you don't get any say in what they do. The shareholders don't get any say in what they do. The customers don't. The employees don't probably don't really. So why should that group of non-people have that much unfettered control of other people's money? I think one easy way would be to really get some shareholder access and control in there. That would be a first step. As I've spoken of before, I'm actually also a very big fan of employee ownership of companies. Uh, maybe not entirely, but at least a significant portion or maybe a majority portion which that doesn't have to be a 51% majority. You could have a plurality. So I'm also going to be honest, though. I am conflicted on how I feel about company takeovers through the stock market to subject them to outside control. So even though I just said, yes, we need to have some additional shareholder control, one problem with that is the way that that is accomplished by and large now is you actually have outside hedge funds set up specifically to try to take over a given company. And one such example of this is a hedge fund called Engine Number no. One, which used its influence to persuade BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard to get dissident board members elected to Exxon's board of directors with the sole intent to try and force the company to accelerate its transition away from fossil fuels and into green energy. So in my mind, at least, it would be different if this were being led by individuals versus a hedge fund set up specifically for the purpose, I, is, I guess is kind of where I stand now. And I also believe that much more control could be exercised through the corporate charter and by making any given company negotiate a new charter for each new state it enters and potentially down to the county it will operate in. Because again, you have stakeholders scattered all throughout this. It is not just the concern of outside shareholders because even though I invest in Apple, I have no clue how the internal operations work. I don't know what the employees actually do. I don't know what sort of value they provide, but they do. They, they will have a better understanding of that. So when it comes to matters like, should we shut down store A, store B, store C, me as an outside investor, I honestly don't think I should have any say in that because I'm basically voting on other people getting to keep their jobs. I'm, I'm not willing to throw them on the street. And again, my 125 shares are nothing compared to the 1.3 billion shares of Vanguard who very likely will just look at it and say, does this increase our bottom line for the next couple of quarters or maybe over the next year? Yes. Okay. Then yes, go ahead, shut down the store. So again, I don't think it's good when you have outside investors having that much control, but individual investors do need to have a little bit more control. And I'm, I'm sorry, I know that sounds like I want to eat my cake and have it too, but we need to find some sort of a balance, I guess, better than what we have now is ultimately what I'm trying to say. And then the next issue that Lanier saw was prostration of state rights. And I could not find the case that he was talking about, but Lanier made this point as follows. He says, quote, nor are the holding companies as such subject to state law since the Supreme Court has held that owning property in a state does not constitute doing business in that state. 
The holding company can be regulated only by the state in which it is incorporated, usually Delaware, and this is equivalent to saying that it is not regulated at all, end quote. And so that that is something interesting. If y'all ever look at Delaware, they they have a, an insane amount of corporate charters there. I don't, I'm not really familiar exactly with what makes their law so friendly to that, but it is something to note. Very small state, but has a ton of corporate charters located there. And then the next problem that Lanier saw was overly lavish executive compensation at the expense of the worker and the customer. And Lanier saw this as a danger to the independency of the masses. Again, we've already touched on this a little bit, but when corporations came in and stifled all of their competitors, he saw that the people would be reduced to mere wage slaves, which would in turn lead to cries from the people for government relief. And we have to acknowledge, yes, that is a very real problem. And I think that this is an extremely strong argument. And given the impact of inflation on the housing market, people can barely keep their head above water in many cases, even when they have one or more full-time incomes in the household. While we may not agree with them turning to the very government that enabled this situation, can it really be considered a surprise when they seek relief in the outlet that they think can provide it? I think the answer to that is a very obvious no. And Lanier also thought that these lavish salaries would be a result of constant price gouging. And I don't, I don't really agree with this argument. So if corporations have done anything well, it has been to achieve economy of scale and offer products or services at rock bottom prices, which is in large part how they drive their smaller competition out of business. You don't really need to inflate prices to make billions of dollars when you have the sheer volume of sales that modern companies have. Amazon alone, just for context, accounted for $386 billion in net sales for 2020, which resulted in net income for the year of slightly more than $21 billion after all taxes and expenses were paid. So when you have that sheer volume of traffic, you, you don't really need to price gouge because you're going to sell so many units that, again, the economy of scale kicks in and you, you can still make a ton of money even by having lower prices. But again, that is also how they drive their competition out of business is because the competition cannot compete with them on those low prices. So what were some solutions? And I want you guys to recall from episode 73, when I described who owns America, I mentioned that it was intended to be a collaborative work that offered solutions in addition to critiques. And Lanier comes through on that in this essay. And while I don't necessarily agree with his proposals, it is always important to have a solution when addressing a problem. Because if you complain about something with no plan of action to correct the issue, it does nobody any good. It, it just doesn't. So the solution that was proposed by Lanier that I found most interesting was to tax companies with higher proportional corporate officer salaries compared to their industry peers at higher rates. So the example that Lanier uses is two companies both reporting a million dollar income for the year. Company A has $50 million in transactions and only $50,000 of officer salary, while Company B, on the other hand, has only conducted $10 million worth of transactions but paid out a huge sum of $500,000 in executive salaries. Again, this is huge because this is 1936 numbers. Lanier would say that the best way to discourage this type of behavior would be to tax Company B at a much higher rate since it is using its resources to pay lavish executive salaries instead of returning that money to employees, shareholders, or reinvesting it in the business. I think this is an interesting concept to try at the state level, but I do not think that the general government should have this sort of power. 
And Lanier actually creeped me out with his follow-up statement to this when he said, quote, since the primary purpose is not that of raising a definite amount of revenue, but of encouraging wholesome business enterprise, it is likely that an independent federal tax commission would be necessary, end quote. So I definitely don't think we should be using taxation as a way to curb behavior, um, kind of like we do with cigarettes. I, I actually don't like that. That really is creepy to me. But Lanier also used some rhetoric that most people would label as communist or even socialist now toward the conclusion of the essay when he stated, quote, neither an individual nor an institution can exist in violation of its fundamental principle of organization. Since big business will not voluntarily conform to the inherent requirements of the system, it must be assisted, induced, or forced to do so, end quote. And again, I don't like the implications of a top-down approach since the general government has enabled the worst elements of the corporate form. And this also serves to highlight one key difference between 19th and 20th century Jeffersonians, in my opinion. The 20th century variety was more than willing to use the general government to try and achieve their ends, whereas the 19th century variety placed state rights above everything else. Uh, personally, I am much more in line with the 19th century variety as time has proven that level of concentrated power is beyond dangerous. But that said, I do think states should be able to try out different methods of taxing corporate entities with some control even being left to the county or parish of operations. So again, leave control at the most local level possible. At the very least, though, it needs to reside with the states to say, hey, let's say J.P. Morgan Chase, if you want to set up a new branch here, then you have to follow these guidelines and you're going to have to concede these points in your corporate charter to operate within our state bounds. And here we're going to go ahead and move into the wrap up. The main takeaway for today is that a common element of criticizing the corporate form is the fact that it has the unnatural gift of eternal life, which grants it the power of eternal consolidation. Indiscriminately defending corporations as air quotes, private industries is akin to cheering our own destruction. So the question now for the Jeffersonian perspective is, should every type of industry be allowed the benefits of the corporate form? And I personally think the answer to that question must be a resounding no, considering the centralization of power that the largest corporations have brought about. But we're going to keep studying this issue over the next episode or so and see what some of the other criticisms are. And thank you all again for tuning in. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener today. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your gold backs. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time. <laughs>